Welcome to Call Your Next Witness. My name is Brian Gibbons. This is a Wade Clark Mulcahy production um, where we try to talk to different risk managers, attorneys, experts, and anybody who has something to offer in the field of litigation, specifically in New York. And uh, our next witness today is a good friend of mine and a practicing criminal attorney named Murray Singer, and he's also, full disclosure, a neighbor of mine from Port Washington. And I would have done this interview in person, except I don't know how to record these things in person. So here we are on Teams. Mr. Singer, glad to have you. How you doing? Great. Glad to see you, Brian. I uh, Full disclosure, I buy all my Girl Scout cookies from your family. <laughs> well, we've, we definitely have those. Uh, God bless the Girl Scouts, by the way. They've got such a monopoly on on the cookie market, and you know they're pretty ruthless about it too. I, every every year, the uh, the the influx of calls and emails we get it's it's stacked to the rafters in in a spare room in my house. It's pretty ridiculous. They have the best cookies. That's what it is. Gun to your head, which one are you picking? If you have to only pick one forever. Oh, the Thin Mints. It's not even an issue. You put them in the freezer like an adult, or do you just eat them out of the package? Well, we tend to overbuy because our kids like them, and my adult children. We they they know that when it's Girl Scout cookie time, if they come by, they can snag some boxes and take them. So, a little bit of everything. I hear you. Um, I go anything that is peanut butter based personally, but but uh, I'm not kicking Thin Mints out of bed either. So. Um, but uh, that, there, there goes here. There goes the seamless segue into criminal defense practice. Um, well, you started with gun to your head, so they're, they're, it seemed well, appropriate. Well played, well played. Penal Code two sixty five rears its head again. Um, so, Murray, you are uh, primarily now a, a private practice criminal defense attorney. Is that is that a hundred percent of your practice these days? Yes. I mean, you know, an occasional something else may pop in, but yes, I'm, I'm criminal defense. Okay. Now you got your start with legal aid, correct? I started with the, my first job out of law school was with the Legal Aid Society's Criminal Appeals Bureau, which at the time certainly was the premier uh, uh, criminal appeals office in the country. Mm-hmm. Great great office, had a great history, uh, a lot of success in the Supreme Court and all. Um, but I started there, kind of learn, learned the trade there, spent about three years there. I was going to say, how did you end up in appeals to begin with? Because that, you know, you really learn the law there. You know, how did how did that that happen right out of the gate? Uh, you know, you start looking for jobs and they had openings and I applied. I'd actually, I had uh, initially taken the Massachusetts bar and had thought I was going to stay up there. Um, but my uh, last semester law school girlfriend, who I've been married to for 39 years, had a job in New York. So I started okay. looking in New York a few months later and Criminal Appeals was hiring. So what I'm hearing is you wanted to go to Massachusetts, Linda wanted to go to New York, so you compromised and moved to New York. 
Because <laughs> uh, that's how compromise works. Sure. <laughs> that's, that's how, that's how compromise. compromise, yes. There, there you go. Um, so you did appeals for a few years. through. And which office were you in at Legal Aid? Were you in, in the city? Uh, Legal Aid has just one centralized criminal appeals bureau. So they ah. did appeals and do appeals. I mean, they're still doing it. Uh, they do appeals for all five boroughs. So I, I did appeals in the first and second department. Where was the office located? Just curious. 15 Park Row. Oh. It's now, right. in, uh, now an apartment building or kind of co-op or condo or something. Right. Um, Is J&R Music World still over there? I, you know, I haven't been down there in quite a while, but J&R <laughs> was right downstairs. It was uh, an interesting building with a history. It was the tallest building in the world when it was built mm. right across the street from City Hall. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's, that's uh, where we were, and it was, and it was about uh, three, three and a half years that I was with, with them before right. I moved to the trial office. And how how did you find the transition at the time to from appeals to to trial practice? Oh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. There was uh, it was uh, like mid nineteen eighty six. There was uh, criminal appeals was uh, overstaffed at the time. And the criminal defense division was understaffed. And so they offered a, uh, you could go for one year. So like the appeals attorneys could go for one year to the trial office and be guaranteed a spot back if you wanted it, which was not the norm because they were, you know, same organization, but separate offices. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I said, sure, I'd love to do that. So I went to the Manhattan criminal defense office and never turn back. And I'm just I'm looking at, you know, your 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 years of practice here and I'm just doing the math on it now. So you were it's a long I mean, time. New York, well, New York <laughs> County Legal Aid Criminal Defense in the late 80s and early 90s. It was there was a, a rough, lot of business at the yeah, time. Yeah, you know, I'm just, you know, you read on Facebook nowadays or you talk to people or see something on the news about how dangerous New York City is. And I just roll my eyes every time because the the New York City in the late 80s and early 90s was a very different animal. Like I, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say for argument's sake, there was between 150 and 200 murders in New York City last year. And I'm just pulling those numbers out of the sky. Yeah, there were 2,000. Yeah. This yep. was, you know, right when the crack epidemic was really hitting New York City. That, that that just did you realize at the time how chaotic it was, or is it only in retrospect? Only in retrospect. I mean, you you know what you know. So mm -hmm. you you know, I, I didn't know how to be a, a a court attorney at that point. I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was, you know, I I was an egghead. I I'd sit in an office. Uh, read transcripts, uh, uh, write briefs uh, in longhand on paper and have someone type it up. It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when you put on a, it, it was a big deal to put on a suit to go to court because you'd be going to argue at either the first or second departments, which were beautiful, august courtrooms. Yeah. And it was a, a big deal for a young attorney. And then I went to the, uh, uh, to the criminal defense division and you start doing, you know, in criminal court, doing misdemeanors mm -hmm. uh, and you go into the all purpose parts, 
you know, that would have 100 or 125 cases on in a day. And uh, I mean, as I think back on it, it was just madness. It yeah, was madness. And it's funny the way you say with the, you know, the all purpose parts, there's there's a lot of jurisdictions outside of New York City where the the in-person volume of litigation, they just don't see it. And when people ask me, like, what what movie would describe what these all purpose parts are like? It's like, honestly, a movie about the stock exchange would be a closer comparison just because you walk into one of these rooms and there's hundreds of people milling around and people just yelling out names and whatnot. It's crazy. Yep. The attorneys walk in and walk up to the front, uh, you know, while the court is calling cases and they stand there. Certainly the legal aid attorneys, there were only, it was, it, it was legal aid and 18B and, you know, private attorneys, mm-hmm. um, but mainly legal aid. Uh, there weren't any alternate defenders at the time. Um, and so they had most of the cases on the calendar and people, you know, you'd walk in and you'd turn around, face the audience and start calling out names. You know, you might have, you know, six or seven cases on that day. Mm-hmm. And you'd start calling out names. And yeah, that's and all, you know, while the court is conducting business, yep. you know, behind you. Yeah. So, and, yeah, and, on- and, and, it, and it was just a just a constant stream. And there were in Manhattan, there were six of them that were operating simultaneously. Volume. Uh, on on average, how did you used to get along with the prosecutors back then? Fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. The despite what you might see on, you know, Netflix, because every documentary that you see is defense attorneys and prosecutors that are at each other's throats all day. You know, I, I can count on one hand the real bad experiences. I, I was a prosecutor for six years, and for the most part, everybody played nicely in the sandbox. Everybody had a job to do, but um, for the most part, I found everything very cordial, and I didn't wasn't really Well, that's the part throws. that, you know, if you're trained well and people talk to you, uh, you know, they tell you that, you know, you've got a job to do. There isn't, there isn't any one case that is worth your career over and it's professional it's not personal mm-hmm. and you earn your reputation so if yeah. you if you know you walk in to a courtroom and start making demands and you're sure you're right and you're closed-minded about it you know you earn your reputation that's on both sides that's on both yeah. sides so and totally agree and along those lines the first the first group of people that I found you had to earn a reputation with was always the court officers and the clerks, because, you know, if, if you like you said, if you come into the courtroom and start saying, yeah, I need X, Y, Z done immediately, especially as a as a new attorney, uh, you just went to the bottom of the list. That's yep. just how it, that's just how it goes. I, I used to tell newer prosecutors and I even say this to people at my office now. If it's your first time in a courtroom and you are clearly a novice attorney, the staff may assume that you're a moron until proven otherwise. And I think the reason they do that is to save time because they don't want to go down these wild goose chases of doing what you know every new attorney asks them to do because the new attorney might be a moron and might be asking them to do stuff they don't that have to. Is, that is a kind take. <laughs> I'm not sure I completely agree. 
I, I mean, to a large extent, they they're civil servants, and they just want the day to go by without any issues, so that they can go home. Some I mean, judges do too. <laughs> the, the, some judges are as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've been uh, I, I've been banging my head against the wall on that one recently as well. So yeah, I, ju judges that enjoy having the job more than they enjoy doing the job. You know, I, and I'm going to tell a story that, and I'm not going to mention any names, but this was years ago. Oh, names. Where <laughs> it was a calendar call in the Bronx, and there was a DWI case, and there was a clearly a privately retained defense attorney who came in, he was there right at 9.30 when the court was ready to go, or the court was probably ready to go at 10.15, 10.30, but first case called, just a discovery conference, nothing's going to happen, and this guy goes on to make probably a five-minute, beautifully outlined summation for why his client's case should be dismissed, and it was basically an oral motion for facial insufficiency. It was very well articulated, and as soon as he's finished, the judge, who had his hand, you know, his hand on his head, just sitting there frustrated, and the judge just goes, "I don't understand. We do the same thing every day here. What is happening?" <laughs> and it was great. And the judge's yep. like, "Yeah, Your Honor, we're uh, we're going to ask for uh, we're going to consent to this hearing and ask for this. Okay, Huntley hearing granted. Whatever." case adjourned for six weeks and this guy i almost felt bad because this guy clearly was being paid by somebody who was there so he had to justify himself a little bit god bless him but the, the judge said exactly what you just what you just kind of articulated about the staff like we do the same thing every day here what are you doing right now yeah we just want it to go smoothly and we yeah. want to get done yeah Exactly. No, uh, you no, know, some no of them waves. would be happy to to work late because they would get overtime. Some of them just wanted to get out and go home. Mm -hmm. um, and they also expect because they're in there every day. Doing that same job over and over and over all day, and they expect everybody that comes into the courtroom to know how everything works. And a lot of the defendants or the defendants families don't necessarily know and so they will ask reasonable questions because they don't know where things are or how it works and they'll get snapped at yeah and meanwhile how like are they you, supposed to know yeah yeah but the 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 learning that went on um in those courtrooms was was unbelievable because with the, at, at legal aid, we'd have one attorney assigned to cover that part that day. So for any other attorney that couldn't come, they would leave a note and you would, you know, if you're the person who was covering the part, you would, uh, you know, cover whatever, you know, handle cases for your colleagues. You'd handle returns on warrants. And these things at the end of the day, when everybody was gone, when your supervisors were gone, and the you know the courts just trying to finish the calendar, they start bringing guys out from the back and you know dropping a case file on you, and it's a return mm -hmm. on a warrant, and they want you to think fast and figure it out and 
get it resolved one way or another. I mean, you you had to learn. It was a great learning experience. Yeah, I knew I recognized that, you know, especially doing uh, night arraignments years ago where, you know, it's 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 a lot like the TV show Night Court, which to those who, you know, to those who know, to those who don't, that was night arraignments is just people bring brought in arrest after arrest. And to your point about having to, you know, think on your feet and figure things out, you know, there would be a hundred cases called in the span of a shift. And it was like, you could set yourself up for disaster because you could have 10 or 15 crack possessions or prostitutions or trespasses in a row. And then all of a sudden there's a rape one in front of you or a, you know, an attempted murder or a pattern burglary. And you almost have to say to the court, Hey, judge, slow down for a second. This is, you know, we've got, we've got one we have to do right here. You know, yeah, you have to pay yeah. attention to this one. Absolutely. Um, you know, Manhattan you don't recognize also, that. Manhattan yeah. back then had uh, not just the night court, and I, you know, worked over through my years there, certainly my share of night court shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Manhattan went 24 hours. Oh, wow. Like four days a week. So the overnight, the 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. shift was called the lobster shift. The lobster and shift. I I consider myself lucky that I only had to work or I only did work one of those uh, in my career there. And it was brutal. It was brutal. Going in to meet a client, you know, in this filthy, smelly cells in the back and interview rooms and it's four in the morning and and the same, you know, kind of nonsense or 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 lies that you'd hear during an afternoon that you just brush off. I'd sit there and go, It's four o'clock in the morning. Really? I gotta listen to this now? (laughs) It was brutal. But they, they, you know, Manhattan did it, uh, had the arrangements 24 hours a day. I got to ask, unless this should be obvious to me or I should know the answer to this, where did the term lobster shift come from? I do not know. Huh. I do not know. Well, yeah, it's a weird, but that's just what it was. So it was a lobster and there were, there were gnomes that enjoyed working those and wanted to work them all the time. Well, you know, it's. uh, Okay, you can do it. I don't have to. That's fine. Some some people like working nights, or but that's not even nights. That's a whole upside down kind of shift. But yep. Um. All right. So, legal aid. You're there for if you include the appeals and the trial practice. You're there what ten, twelve years, something like that. About twelve, twelve to thirteen. I I went to the trial. I started in early '83 in appeals. Went to trials in the summer of 86, and about mm-hmm. three years in, I w- became a supervisor at Legal Aid um, in the trial office in 89, and then I was there until the very end of 94. Now, when you were a supervisor, did you still try cases from time to time? Were you there oh, more? Yeah. Than, yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, why I, was... that's where I started doing some homicides. Okay. Yeah, it was the same thing for me when I was there where, you know, mostly at the DA's office, once you got into a supervisory role, you supervised. You were not, at least not very often trying things yourself anymore, at least in the Bronx, whereas the legal aid and the Bronx defenders that we used to deal with, you know, to your point, that's when the that's when the homicides, the, 
you know, the real serious trial stuff would come in where you're facing real time. Um, and I guess you had yeah, a similar Yeah, we were able to, I, mean, I don't know how they operate <clears throat> now. Um, you know, I've been out of there for a long time, but it's uh, certainly back then I was able to, I, I didn't have a full caseload. I didn't do nearly as many cases as I had done before as a staff attorney, but I was able to take on some cases and try some cases. It was the best part of the job, so I, I didn't want to give that up. Um, and then at a certain point, you decided that you had to shift into the private sector and hang out a shingle, go 18B. How did that all go down? You know, as I look back on it, uh, and certainly as my wife was able to point out, I was getting frustrated with being part of an institution. Um, you know, for, for good and bad, when you're part of an institution, you are judged by the outside world by their view of the institution. Huh. And I didn't, you know, I didn't like that. Uh, you know, oh, you're a legal aid lawyer. You know, I didn't like that. I thought, I mean, the quality of attorneys that I grew up with and learned from were outstanding. Uh, but not all of them. Right. It's a big office, so you're going to get some really good people and some people, you know, that really shouldn't be in the business. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I was getting frustrated with all that. And so it was the end. And at the end of 94, the. Uh, the legal aid union went out on strike. OK, they thought it was a good idea to fight Rudolph Giuliani as mayor. <laughs> and. Uh, and they got their funding cut and legal aid, you know, cut down on their administrative staff considerably. They put a lot of supervisor, you know, put a lot of supervisors, either fired them or, or put them back to staff. And, you know, it was time to go. Mm. And at that point, I was living in in Port Washington. And so I wanted to be I, I, I wanted to be closer to home. And I also thought that there was more of the uh, you know middle class or lower middle class people who could afford an attorney um you know for there to be a, for more private working queens than there was in Manhattan and so i thought it'd be a better place to to set up and start working you know privately i mean over the years i've most of my work is court appointed either 18b in the city and cja at the federal Mm -hmm. um, I won on the federal panel in the Eastern District when I went out at the same time. So, um, so yeah, Queens was the place to do it. Was it difficult to get on those panels initially? Uh, well, the 18B panel, no. Um, I had an easy time getting on the CJA panel because um, I knew somebody. Who helped? Who helped it happen? So, and just to the un to the uh, untrained listener, the CJA panel and the eighteen bat eighteen B panel, respectively, are panels to get to become assigned to trial counsel at either the federal. Yes, or every state every level. every criminal defendant is entitled to a an attorney if they cannot afford one. Uh, eighteen Article eighteen B. 
of the county law of New York is uh, is what authorizes the assignment and payment of private attorneys to represent uh, to represent criminal defendants. So they become known as 18B lawyers or ATB is <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, so the shorthand that's used is 18B, which is simply a private attorney who's appointed by the court to represent someone who cannot afford their own attorney. And the uh, the federal equivalent of that is the, the CJA, which stands for the Criminal Justice Act, which is the federal act that authorizes you know, appointment and payment of private attorneys to represent criminal defendants. Now, do you personally have a preference, state court versus federal court, of where you'd prefer to practice? Well, it depends. As with everything, it depends. The federal That's a lawyer's practice, answer to every question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, federal practice um, has always paid more on it because you keep track of your hours and you submit a bill. And the hourly rate for federal court has always been, uh, uh, until very recently, considerably higher than for the, the state work. Um, it's much more professional. The, the federal calendars are not, you know, are, are a fraction of what the state calendars are. And so the judges, you know, judges don't sit and have, you know, 75 cases on their calendar in a day. They might have three, two or three or four. And so you get a set time and you go at the set time and your case is called. Uh, so it's, you know, it's professional. It is, um, you know, it's certainly interesting and, uh, and it pays better, but there, there isn't nearly as much that you can do for your clients. They tend to be, federal cases tend to be more longer term investigations. By the time they make arrests, the cases are pretty solid. Yep. And so a lot of the federal work is sentencing advocacy, dealing with the federal sentencing guidelines and all. Um, in state court, it's more of a free for all. You can end up sitting, uh, you know, for, for, you know, an hour or two hours or more to wait to get a case called. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't pay as well, and um, you know that's on the downside. On the upside, you can try cases and you can win cases in state court. Yep. And and the plea bargaining is very different. So there's a lot more that you can do for your clients, even if the case, as most of them do, end up in pleas You can still work the case and get a better plea. So if you've you know, if, if you've worked out a plea where your client's time is cut from five years to two years, I mean, it seems like, well, your client's going to prison for two years, but you did a lot for that client. Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, there's many more subtle ways that you can help clients in state court than in federal. Yeah, and, it's, you know, it's the fun of trying cases. I mean, I average like four cases, four trials a year before the world ended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And but to your point about, you know, the I've I've never practiced criminally in federal court, but I've I know a handful of AUSAs and defense attorneys like yourself. Um and you know, in state court, having been a prosecutor, 
unless it's a long-term investigation, you have the police that make an arrest, then you have an indictment, and then you start playing chess against the defense attorney. In federal court, in my experience, the feds and the AUSA are finished playing chess before the arrest even happens. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, and so, you know, you, by the time you get it, to your point, there's putting aside the sentencing guidelines. There's just there's there's only so much wiggle room that you can do. And I remember I remember having a, a defendant one time. On a criminal drug case that we knew was involved in some bad stuff, and then he got he got swept up in. I don't even know if it still exists. You remember Operation Trigger Lock, where the uh, it was a federal mandate where they were doing gun sweeps and this there was a gang in the bronx that uh as the cops would say had a lot of bodies on them and there was this 22 year old kid that took a plea and agreed to 28 years and i just remember thinking like what kind of goods did they have on this guy if he took a plea and agreed to 28 years and i think the answer was they had him hooked line and sinker for life so 28 years looked pretty good in comparison. That was at the federal level, at the state court level, you know, that just there's nobody's taking a plea for something drug related for 28 years under any circumstances in state court. It just wouldn't happen. The sentencing guidelines in federal court are are certainly harsher. You'd rather be prosecuted in state court than in federal court mm-hmm. because the sentences don't have to be as long. And and also in federal court, the judges are not allowed to participate in plea bargain. So you can't work out a deal. I mean, you plead to certain charges that have, you know, maybe certain, you know, mandatory if it's minimums or maximums. Um, you kind of understand where the guidelines may end up. But every single federal plea is part of it is an understanding that there's no promise made as what the sentence is going to be. And so, again, that the, there's there's sentencing advocacy, and that's a big part of the practice in state court. You work out a deal. Yeah, that the judge you know, is usually, usually with usually involved, with yeah. the DA. But if you can't get what you want you know, an agreement with the DA and you're pleading to the top count, you can go straight to the judge. And, and you, know, you know, you know, what's wild is just how different different areas of. Of trial practice are in that sense, in the, if assuming that the goal to some degree is to resolve cases right at the federal level, the judge cannot be involved in the plea negotiations. He only gets involved in the settlement aspect of it. In criminal practice at the trial court level, the judge can be involved and usually is involved and will talk to both parties at the same time to try to almost broker a deal, for lack of a better word. Absolutely. But then when you get to civil practice, not only is the judge involved, but the judge in civil practice will tell one party to leave the room so they can talk to the other party privately in a total ex parte communication where the first time I heard that in, in the civil world, like, wait a minute, well, you, you can't talk to this person without me here. Like, yeah, get out of the room counselor. I'll, I'll bring you in in a minute. It's a totally different way of doing things. And I, 
I never put two and two together with how different, just even at the, the federal from, from state, you know, I, I knew that the judges only handle the sentencing, but I don't think I really appreciated that the judges never even get involved in the, the plea bargaining process at the federal level. I, I learned about that when I was at Legal Aid in Manhattan. Huh. Um, and the way I learned about it is a, a new criminal court judge came on the bench. We're not naming names, right? Sure. But a new criminal court judge came on the bench whose uh, last job before becoming a judge had been working as an assistant U.S. attorney. It was a federal prosecutor and then got put on the criminal court bench in state court. And and she comes into one of these all purpose parts with 100 plus cases on the calendar and starts taking the position. I'm not going to be involved in the plea bargain. It's that's, like, uh, uh, so we you know that that's how I learned that that's, you know, she came to that position because that's what they did in federal court, but she very quickly learned that uh, that she would be there all night. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, that is, calendar if she that's was not participating to, in resolving cases. Yeah, that's just going to create a log jam, you know, because oh, the, yeah. the reality is, you know, it's it's funny, even from county to county, like in Nassau County in criminal court, they do not plead cases out at arraignment. They, you know, the, the cases will be arraigned and then they'll be sent to an all-purpose part in city parts. I don't know what the numbers are, but I got to think upwards of 80% of the cases that at least the non-victim cases, you know, uh, drug stuff, misdemeanors, trespass, all that kind of stuff. 90% of that stuff gets wrapped up in arraignments. Petty larcenies, prostitution. Yeah. yeah. All that stuff gets, gets resolved right then and there. Yeah. Wow. That's a, it's it's wild just to think how you know even within the same jurisdiction or within the same counties that such court parts can operate so differently. But they do even you know when you go from from borough to borough. I mean I you know I learned early on when I got went out on my own and started you know picking up some private cases and I'd go to the Bronx or I'd go to Brooklyn and. You had to walk in and kind of observe for a little bit and get a feel for how they did stuff, because every every borough, every county does stuff differently. Mm-hmm. Nassau does differently. Suffolk does it differently. It's it's you know the same r- rules on the books, but the the practice is just completely different. Yeah, there's there's rules and then there's protocols, and yeah. yeah. I mean, I walked into uh, to a district court in Nassau County. Um, for uh, like one of the first arraignments I did out there, private case, and uh, the clerk says, arraign your client. I'm thinking, the heck I'm arraigning my client. That's, you know, that's, that's your what job. you're here for. <laughs> yeah, I'm not arraigning. You know, and, and, and I just kind of stood there silently, you know, and, and, and he kind of realized that I, I didn't know the, the, the drill. And so he, you know, asked the questions and we did the arraignment. And they, and, you know, Nassau County has a practice of where, where the attorneys will, uh, you know, at a, at a criminal court arraignment on a misdemeanor would say, uh, you know, the defense demands a jury trial. I'm thinking, why are they saying that? You're constitutionally entitled to it. 
You don't have to demand it. You don't have to ask for it. Like, what's that all about? But again, it's just the practices develop in different places and the people learn how to say the right things. I was going to ask you, when, when they when the judge asked you to arraign your client, what were you supposed to say? Like, were you supposed to waive a reading uh, of the rights? The reading, yeah, yeah. You know, we waived the reading, you know, but not the rights they're under. Mm-hmm. And, you know, enter a plea of not guilty, which is silly because it's a it's a criminal court. You know, it's a misdemeanor complaint. I'm not entering a plea of not guilty because there isn't a jurisdictionally sufficient information on which to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, it's just the practice. That that's what they do, but they like want you to run through the stuff so that they don't have to ask them. Yeah, and it's like you said before, you know, the judge, the clerk, and the court staff operate in that courtroom all day, every day. But yep. you're expected to know the rules of every county, every different judge's idiosyncrasies, federal, state, everything. And if you don't know it when you get there, shame on you. Yeah, you know, over the years, you know, you go in and you look like like you're not a kid anymore, mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it, it's easier. When, you know, if you go in and you're 30 years old and they're, you know, they, they figure you're just an inexperienced idiot, not that you actually know what you're doing, but are just coming from another county. Mm-hmm. So yeah, fair enough. Getting older was, was a benefit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. My, uh, <laughs> My one of my mentors, Dennis Wade, has commented on that multiple times that there is a uh, there is a gray hair or white hair cachet that you get in court where it buys you a little bit of credibility just because there's an assumption that this man or this woman has done this a couple of times. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Yep. And uh, my 40th birthday, I was very happy when I turned 40 because I felt like a grown up. You know, I've got four kids. None of them made me feel like a grown up. But when we got a wine fridge in our house, that did. So <laughs> go <Okay>. figure. <laughs> Whatever works. Uh, all right. Let me ask you a, a, an actual podcast question here. Oh, can okay. you can you tell me about a trial that you handled? A case that went to trial, went the distance that either because of a favorable or unfavorable result you really learned something from that you that you've taken with you since that day that's an interesting question the my first homicide trial was i should have stopped after that one because i got an acquittal and the guy walked out uh yeah, one, was a, one for one good night everybody yeah yeah yeah, yeah i haven't I, you don't win a lot of those mm-hmm um my client i won't give you the whole story on it it was a lot of fun it was a a a gay porn star who was in a relationship who had had come into new york for just a short while um to do some performances at you know some reviews or something and uh met a woman who was a uh, a heroin addict and working as a call girl okay. and they started a relationship and uh, someone that they knew who'd been like a pr- producer of one of these 
dance reviews was stabbed and killed in his apartment across the street from where this woman lived and where my client was staying. And and we're talking what, like mid nineties here, something like that. Or this was nineteen ninety. Okay. And uh, a f you know the police interviewed him, and you know they brought him in. They let him go home. They brought him in. He uh, he is like falling apart. He wasn't a real stable individual anyhow, and he kind of fell apart with this girlfriend, and said to her, you know, I did it. Um told her the story of like when he'd gone over because he had it had happened one evening and she had come home from working and he was in the apartment mm -hmm. and so when he said that he had done it she of course assumed that it was that evening before she came home from work because when she came home she was with him the rest of the you know night and, and morning and the next day got it and so she calls the police and turns him in and he gets prosecuted and we ended up i mean the lesson i learned is you don't take anything at face value i mean a colleague of mine and i worked the streets in the neighborhood and found some people who had seen the decedent alive uh after the girlfriend had come home oh wow from her work so he couldn't have done it because he was killed after the girlfriend had come home, the one who believed that he had done it and turned him in. Um, and so she ended up being his alibi when she's the one who turned him in. But it was huh. only because we did the legwork out on the street, the which canvassing, was on the Lower yeah. East Side of Manhattan. We did the legwork and, you know, you go to the scene and you look around and you go into, you know, bars or stop, you know, people on the street and you ask questions and you find stuff out. And that's how we found the witness, you know, found that's, someone who would, you know, who knew the guy is a regular at a bar. And yeah, I remember that. Night. That's that is just that's such a wild story, because to your point, she turned him in based on a confession, but the timing of the confession proved he was innocent. Yes. Yes. So. Let me ask you this. Did you present that to the prosecutor? Before the I mean, before the trial, like, hey, you've got the wrong guy or was it had the, had that ship already sailed? I don't remember precisely. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, just from the conversations you have that, you know, they're not open. If the yeah. prosecutor's just not open to hearing something, you're. You know, it's like I'll save it for trial. Yeah, that's the, you know, I could see five prosecutors hearing that and saying, oh, wow, we need to look into this. And another five saying, you know what? I've got, I've got, got a, a confession. confession. Yeah. 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 Game over. You know, yep. tell it to a jury, buddy. Yep. Wow. That's why. But yeah, to your point, you, you, you just never know. You know, some, somebody comes in. Yeah, I, I told my girlfriend that I did it. But I was I wasn't telling the truth to her. I didn't do it. This is all nonsense. And that turned I mean, out he to be. He was just like psychologically melting away mm -hmm. when he, you know, told this to her. Wow. Um, I still remember the 
two of them, hers sitting on his lap and my desk chair in my office after he got released and brought him back to my office to celebrate the win. So why I continue trying homicides, I don't know, because it was never <laughs> yeah. going to get any better than that. No, that's amazing. It's bad. And you're doing the legwork on, you know, the Lower East Side in 1990. Like, you know, the Essex and Delancey in 1990 was 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 rough. You know, and then you get into some of the side streets over there. It's a rough area even now. And at the time, that's, uh, you know, that that's you, you earned that acquittal. Well, yeah, but you go, you know, and, and but the lesson there was you, you got to do the work. You don't you, you don't take anything at face value that and no matter how crazy a story may be. You you got to consider it. Because the one that you just blow off and say, you know, it can't be, turns out to be the one that's true. Especially as a criminal defense attorney, because, you know, like yep. I, I'm on the civil end. Look, we're, we're talking about money. We're talking about trying to resolve cases. You're talking about liberty here. You know, it's a different animal. It's uh, it's just to me, it's a higher calling. Um, and kudos to yeah. you for for that one. It's a different calling. I mean, yeah. it's. I, I mean, there's certainly a political aspect to it. You know, I think it's just part of it, although not all criminal defense lawyers are lefties. Uh, I know plenty who are, you know, conservative Republicans. Um, but it's, you know, it's, you do what you find interesting. Yeah. It's a luxury we have in this day and age that you're you able go. to, you know, find an area that that just the work is interesting. That the issues um, around this are just to me the most interesting. So, so that's I'm, why I keep doing it. I'm going to throw two more questions at you before we wrap up. Um, first one I ask at in every podcast, and I'm going to ask you, and this is a pop culture question. As a practicing trial attorney, what is your favorite legally themed movie, book, TV show, whatever? Like when I say a legal, a legally themed show or movie that really jumps out to you as either that gets it right, you know, or that that you just for whatever reason sees on what jumps to mind. I don't watch them because <laughs> they piss you off. <laughs> no, because it's watching work. You know, it's it's, it's uh, nice. I mean, most of most of the TV shows about criminal justice are all from the prosecution's point of view. True. Um, the whole Law and Order series is basically I've a never watched. Show. A, I've never watched a full episode of Law and Order. <laughs> uh, I know I'm an outlier. I watch medical shows. <laughs> there you go. You know? Yeah, because... Uh, I mean, those are entertaining because I don't know the details of them. Uh, I know it's all for TV, but <laughs> you know, it's hard to watch. And I've watched some movies and stuff. The, I mean, the best uh, uh, the best trial ever in any medium is my cousin Vinny. Oh, doesn't get doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, no, hundred percent. We actually used to use my cousin Vinny at the Bronx DA's office when then prosecutor, now judge Joe McCormack used to talk all the time about. That's what a prosecutor is supposed to be. Is when he finds out that he has the he might have the wrong guys. Does he still go forward? No, it's like we dismiss all charges. We're, we're not here to win. We're here to get the right guys. It's a completely different, you know, two completely different things. 
and the trial was just incredible. What's interesting, that's what prosecutors take away from that. The defense looks at it differently. No, I mean, at that point, he had no choice. But yes, that that is how prosecutors <laughs> should that is how prosecutors should be trained. Yep. Um, and you know, and for the most part, are trained. Uh, but it ain't a hundred percent. I've dealt with the Queens County District Attorney's Office for a long time, and although they claim to understand what Brady versus Maryland is, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> yeah, so. that's uh. Yeah, we, we've all heard the horror stories and every once in a while, it's just like, you know, it's funny when a former when a former prosecutor is on the bench. You would think that that would be someone who would be pro prosecution because they're a former prosecutor, but that's not always the way, because when they see a prosecutor screw up, they might be three times more pissed off than, you oh, know, than another judge. Absolutely. And some of the, the some of the hardest and harshest uh, judges on the bench were former criminal defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the famous ones from Manhattan from my day were, you know, the hardest ones were former defense attorneys. Yeah, I believe it. We're not naming names, but no, no, we do not name names. Last question I'm going to throw at you. What is one piece of professional advice? that you would relay to an aspiring right out of law school attorney that wants to be a trial attorney? I've already uh, mentioned it. You earn your reputation. You earn, you earn your reputation. The way you conduct yourself with other people, with prosecutors, with, with court staff, with judges, the clerks, the, the court officers, the corrections officers, you know, your colleagues in the defense bar, the, the assistant district attorneys, every one of them, the way you conduct yourself, uh, you, you earn your reputation. And if you're not trustworthy, uh, people won't trust you and it makes it that much harder for you to do your job. And and your job is to represent your client to the best of your ability. If nobody will believe you, you can't get anything done. Yeah, then you're swimming upstream from the start on every single case you handle. Yeah, but if you know, but but on the other hand, if the people that you're dealing with, if a prosecutor, if it, you know, an ADA or an assistant U.S. attorney knows you, and knows that you're straightforward and you go and you lay things out for them with an eye towards resolving the case, they'll listen to you. They'll know that you're not afraid to try a case. And, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to prove every detail. When you tell them something, your word is good. And it makes, uh, I mean, there's nothing more important than that. Earn your reputation. That's a great place to wrap up. Murray, Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. A pleasure.